We'll be continuing in Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, verse 24, moving into Acts 19. If you don't know who I am, my name is David. I am the teaching pastor here and a member of the preaching team. I'm glad that you decided to join us today to worship our living Savior, to, to hear the scriptures. Today's sermon is entitled, Deeper Than Decision, Deeper Than Decision. Have you ever missed a key piece of information? I think that's kind of a, a basic uh, human experience, is we don't always have the complete picture. Two examples come to mind. Uh, the first, obviously, hunting season is in the air. For those of you that hunt, you can feel the cold breeze, and, and that is quickly approaching. In fact, if you bow hunt, I think it is right here on our noses. When I, I only started hunting a few years ago. It was after I graduated college I started hunting. I didn't grow up with guns, didn't grow up doing that. Uh, and the first year I hunted was hilarious because there are two very important things about deer hunting. I'm not a master by any means, but one of them is you need to be where the deer are. And the other one is that if you are where the deer are, you shouldn't move because then they won't be where you are. Right? Those are kind of like two fundamental basic bits of deer hunting. And what I did is I borrowed a gun from somebody and I clomped around the woods and wondered why there weren't any deer. I just kind of assumed, oh, I guess the deer are pretty, pretty much everywhere. You just got to wait, you know, in a cool spot. Oh, that looks like a fun stump to sit on. Okay, I'm going to sit here. I'm cold. I'm bored. I'm going to move on. Clomp, 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 clomp. And I didn't see any deer. You know, it's funny. I started hunting in places where there actually was more sign. And I started walking silently. I started seeing deer. Imagine that, right? I didn't, I didn't have the complete picture. It wasn't that I wasn't hunting, but I was missing some very important information. Or uh, just like a week ago, I got a parking ticket, um, which is like I've never had a parking ticket before. Uh, I always thought I was really good at on-street parking because I had driver's ed in Portland. Uh, you know, like my first day of driver's ed, they took me in the old port during summertime. So I kind of had that trial by fire. I thought, I'm really good at on-street parking. I was just in Biddeford. Okay, Biddeford's like barely a metropolis, right? I mean, it's, it's not hard to park in Biddeford. And I parked close to a corner. And I looked around. There were no signs that told me where I couldn't, couldn't park. I thought, I'm far enough in. I'm not going to be in anyone's way. There's a color code, apparently, for the sidewalks. Like, you know, there's a yellow or a white that tells you you can't park in this section. I guess I learned that in driver's ed like a century ago, and it just left my brain. And... I parked in the yellow, I got a parking ticket. I was missing a key piece of information. So here in today's passage, we're going to see two accounts that the author Luke adds to the story that seem kind of out of the blue. And on top of that, they are just odd situations. They're odd situations where there was some missing information, but these are added by Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit to make a very important point for us. And so that point, I'm going to kind of give you at least my understanding of that point, and then we'll kind of walk through it. It's that walking with God is deeper than just a decision. Walking with God is deeper than just a decision. So if you're not already there, please turn with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 24. It'll be on the screen. There are black hardcover Bibles on the edges that are yours to keep and take if you don't, do not have a Bible, and we'll be on page 872 in the hardcover pew Bible. Let's read the first two verses. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So we're introduced to this guy named Apollos that is beginning to do ministry kind of in the same areas that the Apostle Paul has been doing his ministry. He's Jewish, but he has a Greek name, and he's from Alexandria, which was the kind of the Greek center of learning in the ancient world. And Apollos reflects that culture. It says that he was competent in the scriptures. It says that he was eloquent. The Greek word here for eloquent can also mean learned. So this is a guy who knows what he's talking about, and then he's able to communicate what he is talking about. And he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He's a Christian. And he even is able to speak accurately the things about Jesus. He has a good understanding of who Jesus is. That he was, in fact, the Messiah, the chosen one, sent by God to save his people. He's proclaiming this. But he only knew the baptism of John. He, he had no understanding of Christian baptism. We know that later Apollos becomes influential as a leader in the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians uh, we also see this in Titus 3.13. Some people think that he actually wrote the book of Hebrews. But he had some gaps in his understanding. He was teaching people a wrong baptism, the baptism of John the Baptist, not the baptism of Jesus. So he gets corrected. Starting in verse 26, it says, He began to speak boldly in the, in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I, I love this picture that you have this very learned, eloquent guy and this couple, this fairly down-to-earth couple. They're tent makers that the Apostle Paul knew. They, they've been in the faith longer, and together they take him aside and they fill in some of his gaps in his learning. And this only further empowers his ministry. He is debating in the synagogue. He has a fruitful and powerful ministry, showing people who Jesus is. So that's, that's the first account that we have. The second account we have is in the first few verses of chapter 19. And here we have a group of mistaught Christians. In verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. 
So Paul encounters some disciples. These are followers of Jesus, and he's trying to inquire, okay, you know, how do you guys become Christians? You know, what do you believe? Are we on the same page here? And they weren't exactly on the same page. They had never been taught about the Trinity. They didn't know that God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They knew about Jesus. They, they probably knew about God the Father, but they had no clue that the Holy Spirit even existed. And they had not been given a Christian baptism. They only knew about this baptism of John the Baptist, which John the Baptist, before Jesus' ministry, he was the prophet who went before. And he was, he was baptizing people in the Jordan, dunking them under to say, hey, get ready. Get your hearts ready. Change your way because the Messiah is coming. But the Christian baptism is a baptism that reflects what Jesus has already accomplished. And so, they get a Christian baptism. And then the Apostle Paul lays his hands on them. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And this is demonstrated in Speaking in tongues, which was these spirit-driven utterances with languages that had a divine message behind them, and then prophecy, spirit-empowered messages from God. And we're going to kind of dig more into what's going on uh, in those seven verses in a bit. Continuing on in chapter 19, verse 8, it says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So then Paul steps into the synagogue, he's ministering in Ephesus, and it's interesting that he's there for two years. Steve's sermon last week, the encouragement that Paul received from Jesus must have stuck, because he demonstrates a great amount of endurance in his ministry in Ephesus. He's in the synagogue for a while, eventually things kind of turn sour in the synagogue, and so he begins sharing truth with people in the hall of Tyrannus, which was kind of like a lecture hall. In, in Greek culture, owned by some guy named Tyrannus, which is a pretty cool name. So, I, I have a story to share with you. I think I've shared it with you before from here, and many of you know it. Uh, it's the story of how I kind of decided that I was all in on, on marrying the woman that I'm now married to. So, in 2016, I had just spent a summer at Camperia. Uh, doing ministry with a wonderful staff, and I had noticed one of the girls on that staff. And now she really uh, was, was loving and compassionate uh, in, in towards the teens and, and really had a heart for serving the Lord. And so I went back to school. I was a 1,000 miles away, and so I would just Facebook message her every once in a while to try to get a conversation rolling. I would find the stupidest things to try to ignite a conversation, and we would have a conversation, and then it would kind of slowly peter out, and I'd have to wait again for me to find another dumb reason to start a conversation with her. She never, never initiated conversation, and I started finding that very frustrating. I was like, well, maybe she's not into me, because I messaged her, we talked for a little bit, but then she never, you know, uh, reaches out to me. And, and one day I just got fed up, and, and there was this girl that was on campus uh, that, that I 
kind of felt that she liked me. And so I said, you know what, God? I, I, this is not instruction. I'm not saying you should pray to God like this. I'm just saying this is what I did as a college student. I said, God, I'm going to ask that girl out tomorrow. And the only thing that can stop me is if Dorothy messages me. And I was sitting in a worship service. That, it was a Wednesday night worship service. And lo and behold, during the worship set, Dorothy messaged me. The only time, like, in our pre-dating life that she actually uh, initiated a conversation. And so I was sold. Okay, I had laid out my fleece before the Lord, and I was like, she's it. So, what, and once again, some of you will think this is romantic. Some of you will think it's creepy. I went, I went back to my dorm, and I wrote on a piece of paper. I, I, it was dated in November of 2016. I said, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to marry Dorothy Fellows. Now we have two kids. We've been married for almost five years. So I don't think it's creepy, but uh, I was all in. I had made that decision. Like, I'm going to pursue her. Like, she's the one. I'm not going to get distracted by any of these other girls here at the biggest Christian college in the, in the U.S. No, I am, I'm all in on this girl back in Maine. I'd made a decision. Did that mean that we had the full depth of our relationship? No. <laughs> right? Like, I had made a decision that I was committed. I was all in. But I still didn't really know her that well. We didn't even have an official relationship. And even once our relationship was defined and we were dating, there was still so much more to be had of depth in our relationship with one another. Now, I don't want us to look too deeply into this illustration. We'll start getting wacky ideas if we try to look too deeply. But walking with God is deeper than just a decision. It's deeper than just a decision. It's more than just saying, I'm all in, Jesus. I'm here to follow you. And just leaving it at that, though that is amazing and that is wonderful. Apollos had a real passion for Jesus. He had a knowledge of the scriptures. But his partial understanding meant that those that he taught did not walk in obedience by having a Christian baptism. Matthew 28, when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, Apollos got half of that. He was making disciples. He was teaching people about Jesus. But he missed the whole baptism thing. He had, he had partial knowledge and therefore was creating disciples that were partially obedient. They knew nothing of baptism as Jesus uh, presented it. So, so that's, that's our, first, our first instance. And then the second passage kind of gives us more clues around this topic. The second passage is one of a handful instances in Acts where we see these powerful demonstrations of the Holy Spirit, the prophecy and, and speaking in tongues, fall upon a group of people. And this usually is marking something significant in the book of Acts. It's not that these, these signs and these wonders are limited to these specific incident, instances. We see elsewhere in the New Testament um, that these were practiced in, the, in regular church services. But in the book of Acts, these are usually used to make a point. The Holy Spirit is saying something. Because not every baptism in Acts is followed by people speaking in tongues or prophesying. So in Acts 2, 3, 4, and 11, that's the day of Pentecost, 
There's a very dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's the tongues of fire, and they're speaking in tongues, and people are hearing the good news about Jesus in their own languages. It's this powerful demonstration to make a point. What's that point? The promised Spirit has come. Jesus said that he would send the Helper, and the Helper is here. In Acts 8, the Samaritans become Christians. And some apostles are sent down there, and they lay their hands on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. And that is demonstrated in the miraculous. And then in Acts 10, Cornelius, a group of Gentiles, they aren't even Jewish in the least bit, and yet when they believe, the Spirit falls on them, and there's a wonderful demonstration of the Spirit's power. So in the first instance, it's like the Holy Spirit's here. In those other two instances, it's authenticating that this group of people is also part of the body of Christ. So what's the point being made here in Acts chapter 19? Well, Acts chapter 8 holds a clue. I know we're going like kind of a scavenger hunt. I said that this would have a clue, and then we've got to go to another passage uh, to find a clue. So please flip back with me to Acts 8. This is the instance where the Samaritans received the gospel. We're just going to be in verses 14 through 17. Steve preached this sermon a while ago. You can go back and listen to it to refresh your minds later. It says in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So what was the issue with these Samaritan believers? Because they received the gospel, and then they were baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hadn't come to live in them. That's odd. That kind of goes against the data that we have in the rest of the New Testament. Some people look at that and they say, well, it must have been like a weird baptism. It says it was only in the name of Jesus. Well, in the book of Acts, a baptism in the name of Jesus is just a way to differentiate a Christian baptism uh, from the baptism of, of John. So it wasn't an invalid baptism. If it was an invalid baptism, what would have the solution been? To give them a proper baptism. And that's not what happens here. They don't rebaptize re them. But they lay hands on them. They pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Specifically, the leaders of the church do this. This, in the ancient church, ready for a big fancy word that like, I didn't even hear of until like a few like, months ago? Chrismation. That's a big fancy word. Or confirmation, which some of you might remember if you grew up in the Catholic Church. There's a long Christian tradition of this ceremony that was done after baptism to pray that someone might receive the Holy Spirit and then welcome them into the church. And obviously there are various takes on that. This is not something we practice here at Hollis Center Church. But that's the solution that's given here. Now they were Christians. They were baptized, but they had not been given the Holy Spirit. It seems... I could be wrong about this, but it seems that the Holy Spirit was holding out to make a point. Because usually you believe, and then you have the Holy Spirit. It seems, you know, these were Samaritans. They hated Jerusalem. 
Right? There, was this, there was this cultural divide that the Samaritans said, we have our own kind of modified form of Judaism and we can worship on the mountains. The Jews said, no, you must come to the temple and worship according to the law. There was a big tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And it would have been very easy for the Samaritans if they received the gospel, they were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit to then have no connection to the Jerusalem church. Because, well, we don't like those people. And yet it seems that the Spirit holds back, causing the leadership from Jerusalem to come down and authenticate that they are believers, to give them the Holy Spirit and bring them into the church. And it seems that the Holy Spirit was preventing a church split. And making this point that church authority matters, church unity matters. That seems to be the point that's being made in this odd instance. We can compare this now to chapter 19, verses 2 through 6. So we can flip back to chapter 19. Just to refresh our minds, in verse 2 it says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. These were believers. They were Christians. But they did not have a right baptism in this case. They were not taught about the Trinity. And so then they are rebaptized. Hands are laid on them by a church leader, an apostle, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So I think in this case, the point is once again being made that church unity matters, church leadership matters, church authority matters, but also the baptism is essential. Baptism is important. Now, I want to be very clear. I want to, like, pump the brakes. I am not saying that we need to believe, then be baptized, and then have hands laid on us if we are to be saved, and then if we are to receive the Holy Spirit. Because this is not a prescription. These are actually odd instances that are making a point. I'm not saying that there's this, like, this, this pretty little order that happens, and if you... you check all the boxes, you do all of these rituals, then you have the whole package. I don't believe that's what the scriptures teach. I'm not saying, right, to receive the Holy Spirit or for God to forgive you, you have to go through these very specific steps. What's very clear in the scriptures is that we must believe. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we respond to the message that in our sinfulness, in our incompleteness, in this fallen world, that the God of the universe came down and suffered for us and offers forgiveness to us. When we receive that message, put our trust in that message, we belong to God, and his very spirit comes in and lives with us, seals us, and says, hey, I'm here till the end. I'm with you to the end. 
That's what's normative. That's, what, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. But we should not ignore these two unique situations and acts because God is making a point. I believe it's something around the idea that walking with God is deeper than just a decision. I think the disciples in Ephesus are like uh, many people who are wandering around um, Western churches nowadays, churches here in America, churches all over the place. Because here today in Hollis Center, there's a long history here in America before us of decision-oriented Christianity, where we have these big programs and we have these big speakers come in, and there's a big emotional moment where it's your time to make a decision, or we're going to have an altar call, or we're going to, you know, if it's at camp, you know, put your stick in the fire to say that you're a follower of Jesus, or put a sticky note on the cross. Now, now I'm not completely putting down those things, because guess what? God has used moments like that in many of our lives. I think many of us could look back at our testimonies and see a moment where we were pressed to make a decision, and that was the moment that God convicted us of our sin and, and opened our eyes to the beauty of who Jesus is and the gospel. The day that I realized that I needed a Savior was in response to a VBS song. Right? God can use any moment where his truth is present to draw us to himself. But I think an unfortunate consequence of, of the, this heavy decision pressure that, that we've had in our church tradition is that there are a lot of people who, who made a decision to follow Jesus. They love Jesus, but it never went beyond that. Maybe they were never connected to a church. Maybe they were never discipled. Whatever the situation was, there are people who responded in some big theatrical moment. They responded in a program and made a decision to follow Jesus, but there wasn't anything to, to then draw them into the church, to draw them deeper into knowing who God is. You might encounter people that, that say, man, I love Jesus, but, and, and you think that's genuine. Apollos was a very genuine, ardent follower of Christ. I wish I had half the skill and passion that Apollos had for sharing the good news with people. But these people were missing out. The, the disciples in Ephesus were missing out. Apollos was missing out. There, there might be some of you today that are missing out. And there are kind of three ways that we see this happen in these two instances. There was, there was missing knowledge around who God was, specifically the Trinity. There was missing out around baptism. And there was missing out around church membership. So just to break those down real quickly. Our God is one God, one essence, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It can be, in, it can be easy in any church setting to really heavily emphasize one of those three persons of the Godhead and kind of throw the other two to the back corner. And so what we must always do as Christians is diligently Dwell on the reality that our God is three in one. He's not just one dimensional. In the Godhead, we have a loving Father. 
We have Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. He is our great high priest, that he is interceding for us in heaven right now. He is our Savior. And we have the Holy Spirit, who is God with us, God's very presence in and around us, empowering us, directing us, leading us in truth every day. There's a lot there. There's a lot of depth there, a lot of richness there. When we talk about having relationship with God... It's not just Jesus, it's not just the Father, it's not just the Holy Spirit. It's one God, three persons. Baptism is a dramatic and powerful image marking a believer's commitment to Christ. It symbolizes death to the old and new life in Christ. And man, I'm just excited because we've had a lot of baptisms recently. Over the past like two, three years, there's been person after person after person who has come forward and said they wanted to be baptized. It's exciting. And then church membership. Now here in our tradition, we don't practice chrismation. But the core reality we see in Acts 8 and Acts 19 is that God's, God wants his people to participate in, join, and submit themselves to the church. That idea could be really threatening for a number of reasons. Because in many cases, as people, we have submitted ourselves to leaders who were not worthy and took advantage of us or harmed us, or misled us. We live in a broken, fallen world. Also, I'm a New Englander. Many of you are too. And we tend to be pretty independent. We don't like authority. But God's design for us is not to be free agents, but to worship, give, and serve with others while being under the care of elders and pastors. When our walk is just between us and Jesus and we are disconnected from God's people, it is very easy to turn our faith, turn our God into an idol. Because we have no one to call us on what we're thinking and what we're doing. No one to give us accountability. It can be very easy to kind of, in one part of our minds, tune out certain areas where we are just keeping God out. Or our actions don't line up with truth, but, but we just kind of give ourselves some leeway. We need the, the support of others, the encouragement of others. Especially leaders who are wise and equipped to, to administer to us by the word. Hebrews 13, 17. I don't see a lot of tattoos of this verse. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here at Hollis Center Church, membership is how one places oneself under the care and shepherding of pastors and elders. So we can think of knowing God relationally, the act of baptism, church membership. We can think of them as parts of a marriage. In marriage, God is the one who joins a man and a woman. Yet, the bride and groom knowing who each other are is very important, isn't it? Right? It's concerning when there's a couple that wants to get married and you go, you guys barely know each other. And if they get married, it doesn't mean that they're not married. It just means that they're missing out on depth of relationship. The symbol of the rings is valuable. 
Many of you in this room have a wedding ring. It's an outward symbol that tells the world that you belong to someone else. And in the same way, that's what baptism is in the Christian life. It's this outward symbol where we say, I belong to Jesus. I am unashamed of the gospel. I identify with him in his death. And I, I will one day be raised to newness of life just as he was. It's an outward display. It itself is not the marriage, but it is very important in the marriage. The signing of marriage licenses and sending it into the town, that brings legal recognition and legal protection that the marriage should have in the, in the same way as Christians. When we submit ourselves and we join to a local church, we become members. We are putting ourselves under the direction and protection that we need in our Christian walk. So just basic application for us today. How do we respond to this? Well, if anyone has a small understanding of God, and I tell you what, uh, as someone who is educated and a pastor, guess what? I still feel like I have a small understanding of God. There are many wise and experienced Christians around here to ask questions to, to talk with as we study the scriptures. If anyone believes and has not been baptized, well, guess what? We can make that happen. We would love to baptize you and help you take that step of obedience to Christ. And if anyone is a baptized believer and wants to come under the care of the church, we can also make that happen too. We would love to, to walk you through the process of becoming a member here. But I want to be very clear about this. The focus of all of this is not a list of shoulds. It's all about relationship with our God. Our motive is important. The more we know about God from his word, the better we can trust him, pray with him, walk with him. In baptism, we boldly identify with Christ and open ourselves to the mystery that God works in our baptism. And in joining to a local church and sitting under pastors and elders, we receive the support and guidance that we need in a lifetime of seeking after Christ. Walking with God is deeper than a decision. May God in his grace bless us with a deeper and fuller experience of who he is through the spirit, through the word, and through his church. Let's pray.